Please find your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. It's so good that we can take a virtual tour to Ecuador, isn't it? That, I mean, in a day with video and all the technology we have, it's amazing just to be able to pop in and, and pop out. But uh, as they've said, any of you that want to go see with your own eyes firsthand, uh, that would be encouraged. We also have missionaries in Mexico we support and around this state. So you could start close to home. You can start with just driving up the road and visiting Key Radio or something if you'd like. But uh, we need to remember that our missionaries are, are extensions of this ministry here. We partner with them because we're like-minded, because we believe in each other's ability to carry out ministry, and we should see each other as extensions of each other, okay? And so we, we need to care for our missionaries and always remember them in our prayers. Well, let me uh, pray, and then we will get into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, starting in uh, verse 13. Let's pray. Father of all mercies, we thank you so much for your mercies that were new this morning and for your mercy that you continue to show us moment by moment. We thank you ultimately for the mercy that is seen at the cross, the love that you demonstrated by sending your Son to die for us while we were still sinners. And Lord, we ask that today we would be drawn closer to your heart, that we would be reinvigorated through your word in the gospel message, that we would be inspired to live for you more sincerely, follow you more closely than we ever have before. And that in this room, you would even be calling people to be missionaries, to be sent out to continue the work of spreading the good news around the world. Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word. Help us today to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And we ask together that though I am a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that you would anoint me to preach and that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, to give you a, a bit of a refresh of what we looked at last time, because this was two weeks ago, in verses 7 through 12, we learned about how we are containers of light as Christians, that we have this vessel of a body that God has given us, and most of us are imperfect vessels, right? No one wants to protest? <laughs> we're all thinking we're in the minority. <laughs> yeah, we, we all have imperfect vessels, and uh, we, are, we are in this body that is fading away, but inside we contain light. God Himself has come to make His home in us, and we press on in faith. We are vessels who are pressed but not crushed, vessels who are persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. And we found in verses 7 through 12 how Jesus' life and His death play a continual role in our lives as we go about living for God and serving God. We are constantly delivered over, Paul said, of him and his missionary companions. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul told them, I die daily. 
But what he says in our, our chapter here, 2 Corinthians 4, is that as he's dying daily, he is carrying about in his body the dying of Jesus. That even though we are constantly delivered over, even though we constantly die, we're dying daily, we learn in this scripture that we are with Jesus in that. And he is with us in our suffering. We do not suffer alone. God has not left us alone. But he is constantly with us, even the dying of Jesus in us. But we're not just always carrying about in our bodies the dying of Jesus. We also learned in our passage the last time that His powerful life is manifested in our bodies also. His resurrection life, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, gives life to our mortal bodies, Romans chapter 8 says. And so we are not just pushed forward with the dying of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, becoming uh, into the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. But we're also animated by the Spirit of God. We're made alive by the Holy Spirit. We are pushed on from the inside out by God the Spirit. And that's witnessed in our faith and our perseverance and even the fruit of our ministry. You see there in verse 12 of chapter 4 how Paul said, "...death works in us, but life in you." The life that we sacrifice for Jesus, that we lay our lives down, that Jesus would be magnified in us and through us, it produces fruit that even though we're delivered over, even though we suffer, we know that there is life in us and there is life around us as the fruit of the ministry that God is working in the world. Well, here in our next section, verses 13 to 15, I think Paul really just kind of does a a great job here summarizing what life is all about. With all of this information that we got in verses 7 through 12, take that with you into verse 13, and let's read this again. 2 Corinthians 4, 13, it says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. The big idea here is that we press on in faith. As Christians, this is your job description here. This This is what you have in front of you, is to press on in this world in faith. Sometimes we can get so discouraged by life and think, I have faith. Why doesn't God just beam me out of here? That's not your job description. Your job description isn't to believe and then get raptured. Your job description is to believe and keep on believing, to press on in this life as God is working in you, through you, reaching people as you're an instrument in His hand, pressing on in faith, through trial, through suffering, through through persecution. Though man abandons you, God never abandons you. And you press on in faith that more people may praise Him. This is the big picture in verse 15. uh, Verse 15 of chapter 4. Grace is spreading to more and more people. To what end though? Notice this. That the giving of thanks to God would abound. For His glory. For His honor. That's the big idea. Well, the first thing he says here in verse 13 is that 
we press forward with the same spirit of faith. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Not just in faith, but with the same spirit of faith. There are some people who will interpret this verse as meaning the Holy Spirit, and that's possible, and that's true. You do have the Holy Spirit, and He comes into your life, and He brings about the fruit of faith, doesn't He? That is one of the things that He does. But I think it is best to see this, as the New American Standard translators put it, with a lowercase s, to see this as an attitude, as a disposition of the heart that we are to have as Christians. In the New Testament, we find out that there's the spirit of adoption that we all have. There's the spirit of gentleness, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of truth. These are all lists, uh, uh, descriptions of attitudes that we have as Christians. We are to be gentle, wise, truth-filled, adopted children of God. That's the same spirit we share. And you can add to that faith. We have the same spirit of faith. And that spirit of faith is the same, not just for Paul and his companions as he's traveling on his missionary journey, but the Corinthians had that same spirit of faith. And we today, as members of the church, as members of Christ's body, we have the same spirit of faith as the Apostle Paul, don't we? And as the Corinthians. And we can see even as the psalmist of Psalm 116. You'll notice here in verse 13 that Paul is quoting Scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 116, and I'd like to read that for us. You can turn with me back to about the middle of your Bible, to Psalm 116, starting at verse 1. I would like to read the first 11 verses so we can see what Paul is referencing. And I think you'll find here that Paul is referencing, he's quoting Scripture in context. That's really important. The apostles, when they referenced the Old Testament, when they quoted the Old Testament, they didn't do so just however they felt like. They didn't just look and see if that had some nice words that they liked, and then they just slapped it on whatever teaching there was. The apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit to continue to use Scripture contextually. And we find in Psalm 116 that the psalmist is going through a devastating time kind of like uh, Psalm 13 I talked about earlier during the music. How long, O Lord? How long until you deliver me? We have something similar happening here. Let's start in verse 1, Psalm 116. The psalmist says, I love the Lord. Great way to start a psalm. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications, because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon Him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our Lord is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. He was going through some hard stuff, wasn't he? But notice verse 10. This is what gets quoted in 2 Corinthians 4. When he said, I am greatly afflicted, he said that in faith. He didn't stop believing because his circumstances had gotten difficult, 
He didn't stop having faith because he was persecuted, because he found distress. He was threatened by death. He cried out, Lord, save my life. But he did so with the spirit of faith, the same spirit of faith that we have. He's going through a trial, but he's appealing to God in the trial. And this is a demonstration of true faith. When you go through difficult times, Christian, when you encounter difficulties in life and you're perplexed, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, you're confused, you're perplexed, is your first instinct to go to the Lord and say, I love the Lord, save me? Or is your first instinct to try to do it yourself? The spirit of faith, the attitude, the disposition of believing, it says, first we pray. It's a very simple phrase we can remember. First we pray, but it's very hard to live, isn't it? We have to remember that this life is about God. It's about going to God. He's the one who made us. He's the one who made our circumstances. He's the one who has ordained all that shall come to pass. Who else could you go to? We go directly to God with the spirit of faith. We keep on believing. And as Christians, we're defined by our faith. We even call ourselves believers, don't we? He's a believer. She's a believer. He became a believer. Great things that we say about each other because we're believers. I just want to read to you. You don't have to turn there. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Paul says of Abraham, He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Abraham here is identified as a believer. Out of all the things that happened in Abraham's life, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul says he's a believer. And if you are a believer, you're a child of Abraham. You have the same spirit of faith. You properly identified are a believer. And that does not change despite what might be going on in your world. Whatever kind of trial God is bringing you through, whatever sort of difficulty, whatever sort of pain and suffering you may have, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, whatever it is, you're still a believer, Christian. You still have the Holy Spirit. You still have the Holy Spirit working in your heart, bringing about this fruit that you would keep on believing. Look again at Psalm 116 if you're still there. The second half of verse 2, he says, I will call upon him as long as I live. And then he describes his circumstances. The cords of death encompass me. That does not sound hopeful. The terrors of the grave came upon me. That does not sound good. I found distress and sorrow. These things that we're constantly trying to escape in this life. They were all around. That's all he could see. But verse 4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. And he pressed on in faith. He recognized his circumstances, as you should. You can't pretend like they're not there, and then they go away. Some of you perhaps have closed your eyes, and you open them, and your problem's still there. Hopefully, it's no one in this room. (laughs) We're all still here. (laughs) Your problems don't just vanish, 
But as you recognize them, you appeal to your maker, you appeal to your Lord, and He will bring you through it. He will guide you. He will direct you. And because we believe, we also speak. That's verse 10 of Psalm 116. He believed, and then He spoke that He is afflicted, appealing to God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our text today, verse 13, we also believe, therefore we also speak. If you are a believer here this morning, if I'm talking about you when I say you are identified as a believer, you're defined by your faith, your job description is to press on in faith, if that's you that I'm talking about, well, connected to that, connected to believing, is speaking. There's a connection between what we believe in our hearts and what comes out of our mouths. Jesus talked about this, didn't he? From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not random stuff that comes out of your mouth. It shows you what's in here. It shows you what's inside. And if you believe the truth, if you are a believer in the gospel, you are to speak the truth and speak the gospel. John MacArthur summed it up very well in his commentary. He said, Those who genuinely believe the truth cannot help but speak that truth. Those who genuinely believe the truth cannot help but speak that truth. Perhaps you've encountered some conspiracy theorists who think they found the truth. You've encountered a conspiracy theorist that has found out this certain thing was just all a lie that we all have thought our whole lives, but now we have the truth. Usually those people are very excited to talk to you about that, aren't they? They want to show you all the things and pull out charts and doot, doot, doot and show you everything and convince you because eyes have been open and it's also becoming harder and harder to know what's a conspiracy theory today, isn't it? And so we listen because we don't know. But there there are certain people out there, even people in false religions who think they have found the truth. People will go door to door. People will go travel around and sacrifice their lives even for a lie because they think the lie is the truth. So how much more should Christians give our lives, set aside any pride, set aside any ego, set aside any calculations of relationships and all of that, and just speak the truth in love? We believe, so we should speak. Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 32, those who confess Him before men, He will confess before the Father. That's a good promise. But do you notice how the two things go together? We have to have a confession, and the confession involves our mouth. It involves what we say. True believing will reveal itself when we speak, as we speak the truth. And we should make sacrifices to get that news out. We should make sacrifices to see that message spread, to see that word spoken to more and more people around the world. That should be the desire of our hearts as Christians. We are not all the Apostle Paul, of course. You're not called to get on a ship and go island to island in Greece. Though that might sound appealing to you, but not in the first century it wasn't, okay? We're not all called to do what the Apostle Paul did. But we are all called to sacrifice to advance the message, aren't we? Jesus didn't say, pick up your pillow and follow me. Okay, we pick up our cross and follow Him. We make sacrifices for the message of Christ. So we press forward with the same spirit of faith. And then verse 14 teaches us that we press forward knowing that the end of this faith is what? Resurrection. 
The end of our faith is resurrection. This is a great passage to be preaching right after Easter. It's fresh on our minds, the resurrection of Christ and its implications for us. And here it is, verse 14. We know that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. What a promise. It says, He knows this. We know that He who raised Jesus will raise us. We know it. So even though, of course, this is a faith thing, it's a believing thing, it's a matter of faith, we also are embracing Christ's resurrection as a fact of history, aren't we? Oh, okay, all right, very good. <laughs> we are embracing the resurrection of Christ as a fact of history. This is not just some imaginary thing that we say to make ourselves feel good. I could come up with all sorts of things for that. It would start with like eating pizza or something, all right? And that makes you holy. No. Real life, real world stuff here that God himself entered into time and space. He took on a body. He lived as a servant among us. And they killed him even though he was perfect. But he rose from the dead. He is not dead. He is alive. And so we accept the resurrection as a fact of history with all of its implications. I mean, consider who's writing this, the Apostle Paul, knowing that he who raised Jesus from the dead. Like, yeah, we know this, of course, it's obvious. What was Paul doing immediately after Christ's resurrection? Probably trying as much as he could with all of his life to squelch that message, denying the resurrection, persecuting those who believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't want anything to do with that message. And now look at him. He says, well, we know this. And we have a resurrection in our future too. And he's encouraging the church. He's not killing the church. He's encouraging the church. Because he's been changed by the power of God. And he knows that Christ rose from the dead. The God of the incarnate Christ is our God. As God raised Christ, God will raise us. We share that same resurrection hope. As we were just reminded last week, the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's the, that great chapter that focuses on the resurrection. Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. You know what that means? Not worth anything. <laughs> if Christ did not raise from the dead, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sin. But verse 20 says, but Christ did rise from the dead. He was raised. It is a fact of history. It's the cornerstone of our faith. And we can say that we know that Jesus lives. We can say with Job, that saint from long, long ago, I know my Redeemer lives. Not I think, not I hope, not chances are. I know my Redeemer lives. And so we press on in faith. And Paul says, because we know this, we know we will be raised with him. It's interesting when you read Paul's letters, sometimes he'll talk about being raptured, being alive when Jesus comes, and being caught up and, and being changed in the twinkling of an eye. In fact, when you read about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, when you read about this in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses first-person plural language. He says, those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. Us. 
And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye when the Lord returns. Like, I think he anticipated day by day that Jesus would return, which is a whole nother level of faith, isn't it? That's the faith we should aspire to, to expect each moment. This could be it, the Lord Jesus returning. That presses us on into holiness. That presses us on into serving the Lord. But we see that Paul also knew that if the Lord did not return during his lifetime, he knew that he would be raised from the dead. That just because he died before Jesus returned, that didn't mean all hope was lost. Because those who have died in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. And Paul says, we will be raised with him. And it's with Jesus. Your resurrection, Christian, is not apart from Jesus. Your resurrection is with Jesus. If you are in Him, you are one with Him. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, your whole life is tied up in Christ. It says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, returns. That's what we're looking forward to, is our life coming, and we will see Him face to face. Your resurrection will be with Him. But not only with Him, you see in verse 14, our resurrection will be with other believers. Paul says that in this resurrection we'll be with Jesus and He will present us with you. All believers, the church, will be presented together as the bride of Christ. When you read Revelation 19, there we are together dressed in fine linen, white linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. That's where we're headed. We'll be presented together in Jesus, our resurrection with Jesus. God is faithful to us. We call on Him in faith, and He tells us that the completion of this faith, when this faith reaches maturity, the end of this, the goal, is resurrection with Jesus presented with one another. And Paul goes on now to expand with this implication, saying, for all things, verse 15, are for your sakes. All of this pressing on with hope, all of this pressing on in faith, all of this pressing on looking toward the return of Christ or our future resurrection is for the sake of the church, the building up of the church, leading to the praise of God. Paul did not go on preaching Christ for his own personal gain, for his own personal glory or fame, but he was serving the Lord as an instrument in his hand. As Jesus said, I will build my church, a promise. Paul presented himself in faith as an instrument. He could be that trowel as Jesus is building his church brick by brick. Paul was an instrument in Jesus' hand. And through all of this, verse 15 says, grace spreads. Don't you love that, that it's grace? It's not law that's spreading. It's not man's law. It's not God's law spreading. It's not man's works. It's not false righteousness. It's not ego pride. It's not cliques. It's none of that. It's grace. Grace is spreading to more and more people. This is the evidence that Jesus is building His church, that more and more people are coming to know grace. And the end of this grace is abounding thankfulness to God's glory. Just like the end of our faith is resurrection, the end of this grace going out is people praising God, that they would praise Him with their mouths. I was just reading earlier this week about Zacharias, the, uh, the father of John the Baptist. Remember, he couldn't speak. The Lord stopped his mouth, muted his tongue. And then 
When the time came to let him speak again, it says what came out of his mouth was praises to God. First thing that came out was praises to God. And of course, we see the big picture in Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise and glory to God alone. Therefore, in light of all this, we press on. We know that God is accomplishing His purposes. And for His sake, we endure all things. Let's pick it up in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says in verse 16, we do not lose heart. That's the same thing he said in the very first verse of this chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, we do not lose heart. And he kind of has bookends here. For all of these reasons, we do not lose heart. We do not give up. We have hope. We have courage, even as we die daily. And then he introduces for us this great paradox of life. That you have an outer person and an inner person. At the same time, going side by side, the outer man and the inner man. For Christians, one of these decays, but the other one doesn't. The outer man is wasting away, you could say, but the inner man is being renewed and refreshed as you go on living for Christ and serving Christ. This decay of the outer man for the Christian, it begins now, doesn't it? You're a little more decayed this Sunday than you were last Sunday. (laughs) Some of you have a few more gray hairs than you did last week. Some of you are limping a little more than you were last week. Decaying day by day. Kind of just going downhill. We we went uphill for a while, didn't we? And then you hit a point and you start going down. (laughs) Okay, We're decaying day by day. And this decay continues in the tomb. In Psalm 16, there was that great promise, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And Peter, when he's explaining that at Pentecost, he says, that's not about David because David's tomb is with us to this day. David's decaying in the tomb. He's talking about Jesus. He will not decay. But for us, like David, downhill we go, sliding down that greasy hill toward death, aren't we? Decaying day by day. We have these fallen bodies that don't work right. These fallen bodies that need maintenance. Like the tin man, we need an oil can. We're decaying day by day. But our inner man is being renewed day by day. What's interesting is for the unbeliever, what's happening on his outside is actually happening on his inside too. Perhaps you've heard of that word depraved that we have. In the New Testament, Paul talks about people of depraved mind. And it's the same word that we have here for decay. A depraved mind is a rotten mind. It's a corrupt mind, a decaying mind. But for the Christian, you do not have a depraved mind. You have the mind of Christ, the New Testament says. For the believer, you're being renewed inside out, day by day. And Paul says in this passage, these last few verses, in verse 17, 
that this decaying is momentary light affliction. He's teaching us here that we can downplay life's hardships in this earth when we have an eternal perspective. When we have a perspective that compares and contrasts all these things we know to be true appropriately, we can see our affliction in this life, our decaying, our wasting away, our suffering, our hardship, as momentary light affliction. No big deal. No big deal. Do you know that's a fruit of having faith? Is seeing your trials as momentary and light? If you don't have faith, if you're not exercising faith, then what do your trials become? Huge monsters that are just following you around, the dark cloud. And it's all you can see. You're so consumed by the trial. You're so consumed by your suffering that it's not momentary and light, but it's all you, it's all you can see. Paul says these trials are light. That's the same word that Jesus says of his burden. Come to me, you who are heavy laden. My burden is light, Jesus says. Same word. Our trials, they're light. Earth's hardships are insignificant compared to eternity. When we are consumed by earthly burdens, we're distracted. Look at verse 18 again, the last verse of this chapter. If you're looking at the things that are seen and that's all you can see, you're distracted by the temporal. You're distracted by things that will waste away. You're distracted from eternity. You're distracted from an eternal perspective when you're consumed by earthly burdens. But pressing on in faith means that we constantly bring the invisible realities to bear on our lives. The world can only see what is tangible. The world can only see what is visible. But you, O Christian, with the mind of Christ, with the spirit of faith, bring what is invisible to bear on your life today. That it's not just a difficult relationship. It's not just you know, the car, just, I can't fix the car. It's not just a diagnosis. It's, just, it's not just fill in the blank. But this is something that God is doing. This is something that the Lord has brought to pass. This is something that the Lord is using in your life, that the Holy Spirit is using in your life to draw you closer to God, to reorient your thinking, to change your heart, to grow your faith. It's not just this or that. It's all God. It's all about what the Lord is doing in this world through us. And that's not to say that this perspective is easy. And it's also not to say that we should just ignore your problems. You have to, like the psalmist, face your problems. Say what they are. But do so with a spirit of faith. Do so with a heart that trusts God through the whole thing. To see God's purposes in it. Paul even says in this passage that our affliction produces an eternal weight of glory. The affliction itself is producing an eternal weight of glory and a greater blessing. Think of big scales, you know, the old scales that uh, Lady Justice, who is blind, she's got the scales in her hand. Think of those big scales. Put your trials on one side. You know, the other side's empty. You put your trials in and whoop, down go the scales. And some of you are going through difficult things. Some of our scales would drop faster than other people's scales, right? But down it goes. But now put onto the other scale the eternal blessings that you are promised in Christ. 
that side is dropping so fast, might break the table, right? Just falls right through. Because the weight of the glory that is to come, it's just so magnificent. It's so beyond our thinking that these trials aren't even worth that comparison. You see how silly that comparison is? Why would anyone need to get the scales out to know the difference? But if you did, that's what would happen. Because what we have promised for us in our future, these invisible realities are so much greater than any difficulty you could face on this earth. And some of you have been through some of the most difficult things a human being can experience in the fallen world. I know it. I've heard your stories. But even that is not worth being compared to what you have in your future, Christian. It's not worth it. It's light, momentary, it's insignificant compared to living forever to the praise and glory of God in a restored body, immortal, seeing your Savior face to face, enjoying eternal life forevermore. But God uses this life, He uses the trials of this life to develop the glory that is to come, to work in us this greater hope, to impact the life that follows Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, said, Paul viewed his physical problems, light affliction, as temporary for a moment. His difficulties, though light, were not slight. They were severe. He viewed them as a necessary means to a glorious end. Paul is instructing, he's teaching here, that these trials are a necessary means to a glorious end. Beyond comparison, our home is exceedingly more glorious than our pathway home. We will encounter all kinds of snags. We will be tripped up all along the way, but we do so in faith. The assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11 says, the conviction of things not seen, we press on in faith, okay? Well, next week, we'll pick it up here again and get into chapter 5 and talk about some more, the reality of heaven. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. And we ask that today as we take these words with us that you've given us in the Bible, that these words would continue to teach and instruct our hearts, that what you have instructed us through your apostle would be brought to bear on our lives, and that we would have an eternal perspective living for you that we wouldn't go through this life looking at the things that are seen only, but that we would bring to bear on our circumstances the hope that you've given us. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for our time together, this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.